You are listening to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Claire O'Brien. In healthcare, we have so many questions about what's trending versus what's actually the truth. So on this show, we're going to get to the bottom of it. It's health, it's wellness, it's beauty, explained by the people who actually know what they're talking about. Hey guys, welcome back to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I am your host, Claire O'Brien. I'm a nurse practitioner and I'm here with Dr. Amita Kundra. She is a anesthesiologist. She's in New York. She's a wife. She's a mom. She's doing really, really cool stuff in women's health and healthcare space. And I'm just so excited to have her on to talk to you today. Thanks for coming. Thanks for taking the time. It's late, late at night for us. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Yeah. Um, well, tell us a little bit about your kind of your background and your training and how did you get where you are? Um, yeah, so I'm a cardiothoracic anesthesiologist or I'm trained in cardiothoracic anesthesiology. Um, um, I actually, when I went to college, I had a strong interest in writing and healthcare and, um, you know, I came from like a traditional Indian family. So Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was debating whether to pursue a career in journalism or medicine. And then, um, you know, I was kind of encouraged to go into the healthcare field, but it ended up being like the best decision for me. Um, so because I think it really does suit my personality. Uh-huh. Um, so I ended up, uh, going to medical school at Ross university. I went to undergrad at, um, Barnard college, mm-hmm. Columbia university. and um, when I was rotating in medical school, I, you know, really liked being in the operating room, but I didn't really think surgery was for me. Um, I liked the fast paced environment and I liked the problem solving. And, um, one of my good friends, Saya Nagori, who you may know from social media, we grew up together and she was like, you know, Amita, why don't you like do a rotation in anesthesia? Um, and I was like, Oh, I never really thought about it. And, um, I actually ended up really loving it. And, um, I ended up applying for residency and, um, ended up matching into, uh, university of Buffalo for anesthesiology. Um, and, and then I ended up uh, doing a fellowship in cardiothoracic anesthesiology where we focus on the heart and, um, you know, we provide anesthesia for open heart surgeries. We mm-hmm. learn echocardiography and, um, yeah. And then that's kind of how I got into it. And I'm really grateful to be in a field that I enjoy that I love, um, practicing in. Um, and yeah, that's kind of the short story of how I ended up there. <laughs> so what are you, what are you putting people to sleep for predominantly heart open heart surgery? Is that the bulk of what you do or what else, what else do you do? So I used to actually, uh, do just open heart surgery, do anesthesia for open heart surgeries. Um, uh-huh. and I really enjoyed it and I thought it, it, I really did enjoy it. Um, but you know, it got to a point where in my career where I decided that I was getting burnt out and I, although I really enjoyed it, um, there for many reasons, like the fact that it's a very high pressure situation, I can imagine. um, that. you know, yeah, I mean, you're taking care of the sickest of the sickest patients. Um, there's very long cases. And, 
you know, there were just times when I felt like I was really burnt out. And, you know, and also I was at this point in my life where I was getting married and, you know, I uh, was lucky enough to find a partner and that I, you know, got along with very well. And I was planning my wedding and I basically like, I barely planned the wedding. I mean, I didn't have time to. Um, And, you know, and then, you know, and then I realized, you know, I think maybe it was time for me to transition. So I ended up, I ended up doing a lot of thoracic surgeries. I did a lot of um, surgeries for lung cancer. I specialized in that. And um, now I kind of have a, I, I'm, I do general anesthesia. So I basically provide anesthesia for all different types of surgery from neurosurgery to OB to orthopedic surgery, um, to general surgery. Um, explain anesthesia. I mean, I feel like even I always assume that people know what everything is and I feel like people are, so I worked in surgery for 10 years and people are generally terrified of like, quote unquote, going under, or I don't want to be fully, you know, I'm like, they're very worried about being fully under. And I'm like, I don't even know what that, what, what do you, what do we even think that that means? So can you kind of just explain to people like what, what is anesthesia and what happens when you go under? So that's a good point. So yeah, I, I do agree with you. I mean, a lot of patients I meet, they're more scared about the uh, anesthesia than they are about the surgery that they're having. And totally. there is a very little, yeah, there's like very little information out there. Um, there's a lot of fears about patients. A lot of patients will say, oh, I'm afraid that I'm going to be awake in the surgery. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, anesthesia is actually where you are in a state of unconsciousness. And we are monitoring your breathing, we're monitoring your vital signs, so your blood pressure, your heart rate, your um, oxygenation. Um, but it's not, it's not technically, you're not technically asleep. Um, there's actually been a lot of research that's been coming out recently where they actually have been saying that you are not really in a state of sleep when you're under anesthesia. You're in a state of unconsciousness. You're just super um, high. And you're, and yeah, or you're in a state of, yeah, and depending on the type of anesthesia you're receiving, your brain waves actually change. And there's been discussions of whether your brain is actually rewired under anesthesia. Um, so it's an interesting thing. And the truth is, is that we don't know really mm-hmm. a lot. We know, we know what, you know, we know that anesthesia is really safe. I mean, the chance of a complication under anesthesia is like less than getting into a car accident. It's very safe. The medications we use are very safe. But we don't know actually what happens when you are under a state of anesthesia. And there's a lot of research that's being done about that. Hmm. That's super interesting. And so not everybody, I think people are confused about this too, that there's so many different levels and ways that you can be, you know, asleep or comfortable or I say asleep on sedated. No, no, no. It's okay. I mean, it's like hard to even explain, you know, without having a breathing tube, right? Like I think people are also very terrified of being intubated or having a tube in so that they can breathe. So when do you guys make the decision whether or not to do that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think anesthesia is, um, an art and a science. And I think we're trying to make it more of an art, more of a science and less than a, less of an art, but you know, it, the type of anesthesia you receive um, mm-hmm. really depends on the type of surgery you're having, what type mm-hmm. of medical 
um, issues you have, um, the length of surgery. Um, there are so many different factors mm-hmm. that are involved, like when you ate, um, you know, so all these factors kind of determine what type of anesthesia you receive. And, you know, um, the one thing I would say is that anesthesia is very safe. Um, I also do believe that, um, I do want to say that, um, you know, some patients say, oh, I don't want to be awake. I don't want to hear anything. And I remember I, I'd be, when, I, when I see patients in the GI center where they're having colonoscopies, endoscopies, uh-huh. I have to explain to them that most of those patients receive, you know, sedation or, um, you know, some form of sedation of depth of anesthesia, of, to, of depth of anesthesia. And many times um, they may hear sounds when they're under anesthesia and that's completely normal. So yeah. I have to explain to them that, Hey, you're going to be sedated. You're going to be comfortable. You're going to be safe, but you may hear sounds when you're during the case and that's completely normal, you know? Um, so, uh, you know, I think like education and, and, and providing them the, uh, an understanding of what is actually occurring, I think also really helps. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting people's perceptions of, of drugs and medicine and what, you know, what's actually going to happen. I'm sure you have to really talk people off the ledge probably all the time. Cause I, I totally agree. People are often more afraid of the anesthesia than the actual surgery. Um, so it's, it's really interesting to watch that. Um, having had anesthesia a few times myself, I personally love it. It's like a great nap that your insurance hopefully pays for and, you know, wake up and probably feel fantastic. <laughs> so it's, I am a fan. Yeah. Of you have a, oh, I mean, yeah, I've received anesthesia and I've always uh, really enjoyed my nap. I wake up and, right. I'm, you know, right. it's, you're not, you don't have this, like, I didn't, I didn't feel, you don't have that hangover feeling. I felt great. Um, I always say this is like, I, when I give administer anesthesia, sometimes they'll say, oh, this is like a cocktail, but without the hangover. Totally. <laughs> so yes, propofol, <laughs> delightful. Um, and I yeah. was wanting to ask yes. you too, I, I put up a question box and I just had some like funny ones and good ones. And I wondered if there were any myths, common myths that you hear that you wanted to dispel, but I have a couple too that I wanted to ask you about, but any, which any comp, super common myths that you just like want to get off the table? Yeah, I think awareness is something um, that is important to discuss. I think it also will alleviate some fears about anesthesia. Uh-huh. Um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of most TV shows and movies about anesthesia talk about awareness or have to do with awareness. And awareness under general anesthesia is very rare. Um, it can occur, but it's, you know, the percentage of it occurring is like less than. 0.1%. I, I, I don't count, don't um, quote me on this, but I have to look up the research, but it's very, uh-huh. very small. You mean that someone um, would be like fully aware or like feeling what's going on or just aware like mentally? Um, that they may be feeling what's going on under general anesthesia. And the cases, in those cases, the cases that are most likely for that to occur are in trauma cases or cases uh-huh. that are have a lot of blood loss. Um, but you know, the ch- the percentage of that is very low. So rare. Um, it's very rare. There was a TikTok but, about yeah, it that is something recently. Im- 
Did you see that there? It was a a woman. I'm sure like a million people probably tagged you in it. The lady that was, I guess she was having an emergency C-section or something and her epidural didn't work. And so she felt the whole thing. I don't know. Anyway, it was terrible. And, um, but so many people were like, that's, Uh, that never happens. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I think Magnolia Prince, um, I think she did a, she like responded to that TikTok, but, um, yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately with OB, it's, it's a challenge. Like it can happen. Um, but it's quite rare because usually, you know, they can administer more medications. We can give more medications either through the epidural catheter or through the IV to really help supplement the, um, anesthetic, mm-hmm. um, you know, during the C-section, um, I mean, having received one, it's a very, it, I had a spinal for mine and yeah. it was definitely a unique experience. Um, and, um, it's definitely also a challenging and stressful time. So it's really unfortunate. I haven't seen that TikTok. I'll, I'll look it up. Um, you know, once we're done with this to see what, what actually happened, but it's definitely, a, it's, it's definitely brutal. a really challenging time. And it's so sad that that happened to her. I saw that you had spoken too about, um, while we're on the subject of epidurals, but, um, about the article that came out in JAMA that kind of vaguely associated epidurals and autism. And you were kind of breaking that down and, and explaining to people, do you, can you explain that a little bit? And, and was that an actual real correlation or something that people need to consider when they're considering getting an epidural or what are your thoughts on that? That's a hard one. Yeah. So no, so actually, um, my friend Jen Lincoln also did a post about it, and we did one together. And it was it, this was a paper that was published, I think, over a year ago in JAMA that mm-hmm. there may have been a correlation or association between epidurals and autism. And it was um, the study actually didn't really show in a, a correlation. Um, it, it didn't show a correlation. It just kind of showed that like you know, this was happening at, the, there may have been an association, like there may have been, a, it may have been a happening at the same time, but there was no causation. So there was no proof to show that the epidurals are actually causing these babies to be autistic later on. Mm-hmm. And then there was actually another study that was done and published um, very recently, actually, actually supporting that and showing that there's really no association between epidurals and autism. Um, Jen Lincoln said it perfectly. She was like, she was like, yeah, it's like saying that like, there's more ice cream cones, like people eat more ice cream cones and and there's more shootings the same day that people are eating ice cream cones, you know? So it's Mm. just like a loose association that really didn't show any causation. Yeah. Yeah. Correlation and causation are, are very different and it's really hard. And when we're just reading a headline for people to realize that, um, you also talked about yeah, for sure. pump and dump. Um, and I loved that. I loved hearing about, um, you know, there are so many women that put off surgeries or procedures or things that they need to have because they're nursing and pregnancy is very different, but, but nursing, I, I think you, as, a uh, a mom really can neglect things in yourself for so long because you're, you're really just kind of in this, constant state of trying to figure out what's safe and acceptable. Um, and I think anesthesia again, kind of falls in that category of like 
maybe it's not safe for me or I'm going to have to pump and dump for X amount of times. And there are people that will tell their patients that, but I, I love that you just mm-hmm. addressed it directly and said, you know, absolutely not. So can you talk about that? So if you've been following Dabbleco and me for any length of time, you know that I'm super careful with anybody that I endorse or any partnership or brand here. So the goal is always to share evidence-based medicine and things backed by actual science with our audience and our followers. So I was thrilled when BetterHelp approached me to do a partnership with them. So thank you so much to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. BetterHelp is an online platform that connects you to counseling in an incredibly convenient and affordable way, which I think are the two biggest barriers to counseling, access and affordability. So I was actually really surprised when I looked up their rates for counseling. They were a third of what I feel like I've ever heard and what I've personally paid. Um, It solves both of the problems with literally the click of a button on the internet. So I have personally seen the benefits of counseling. I know firsthand how important it is, and I know it plays a crucial role in mental health. So check them out, and they will know that I sent you, and you'll get 10% off your first month of counseling if you head to betterhelp.com slash dabbleco. Um, So it's super easy, betterhelp.com slash dabbleco. Thanks, guys. Yeah, so it was actually something that has come up like quite a few times quite recently during my practice and being a new mom and like, you know, I breastfed for um, as long as I could. But I think that um, it was frustrating for me to see like colleagues and, um, you know, surgeons that really didn't know the literature and they would tell their patients, oh, yeah, you can, you need to pop and done for 24 hours. And so it just made me really frustrated. And and the literature is clear. Um, you know, the American Society of Anesthesiology has guidelines about it, clear guidelines about it. And um, they actually say that, you know, most anesthetics are quite safe because they're actually um, metabolized very quickly and they don't, there's no remnant of it in the breast milk. It's metabolized so quickly through your body that it's not transferred to breast milk. Mm-hmm. So most anesthetics that you receive for a C, for like a general anesthetic, um, you know, those, those are metabolized so quickly that you can still breastfeed as soon as you wake up. So it's like, it's the same thing with alcohol. You know, we hear a lot about that too. Like, Oh, you can't drink when you're breastfeeding. And the truth is, is like, if you can hold your baby, you can actually, you can breastfeed your baby. So I love that. And I'm not still preach pump and dump. And even the AAP, like their website is like, basically, if you're not too drunk to hold your baby, like you're fine, you're fine. You don't need to pump and dump. It's yeah. Never need to pump. and dump. Just don't get so drunk. You can't hold your baby. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So it was really frustrating to hear people still say that. And, you know, the only medication that they do not recommend to that you breastfeed while having anesthesia is Demerol and Demerol Um, you know, meparidine, yeah, is a medication that they often give for shivering, but it's, and it's not even, they're not even saying that they don't recommend it. They're just saying there's not, there's not a lot of evidence. Right. So that's up to the discretion of the doctor, but that's something that you can discuss with your, you know, anesthesia per anesthesia provider prior to having anesthesia, you know, an anesthesiologist, you can explain, Hey, I'm breastfeeding. Um, you know, I'd like to avoid meparidine or Demerol and, And, and the majority of the time we don't even administer it. So, um, yeah, that's something that was really frustrating to me. So that's, I think the reason why I posted that. And, um, the other interesting thing that we don't always think about is that, for example, like after my C-section, 
I was prescribed oxycodone, you know, for a short period of time for to manage my acute pain and my incisional pain after uh-huh. my C-section. And I was breastfeeding the entire time, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's so, you know, if you think about it from that respect, like why, why is there like, there's such a misconception out there, but why is that misconception out there? Like, you know, it's just something that I really wanted to discuss and I thought it was important to put out there. Yeah. I think it's really helpful for people to hear that, you know, and, and that you don't have to pump and dump one ever, but two with something as important as anesthesia, because there really could be something significant that someone needs to have done, or maybe even like a screening colonoscopy or something just because even if you say, Oh, pump and dump for, you know, 24 hours, like that, that's not that big of a deal. It really might be. I mean, you just don't know that really might, that might be a huge deal for that mom or for that particular baby, or, you know, maybe they don't have milk in the freezer. Not everybody has, a milk, you know, store in the freezer mm-hmm. and not every baby at whatever age will take a bottle. I mean, you just have, we have just have no clue. And so I think a lot of those things seem like a really simple things to tell people that seems like they're doing it for the safety of the baby when really it, it may be putting the mom at a huge risk if, if they're putting off things that they need to have. Um, so yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Actually, um, yeah, I think that that's very important. And, you know, we obviously self care is so important and we need to take care of ourselves as mothers and as wives and, you know, as humans, right. We can't put these things off and, you know, I see it happen quite often. Um, you know, mothers will delay appointments or checkups or surgeries that may need to happen, um, because yeah. they're breastfeeding and, yeah. you know, you can breast and that's a long time, you know, yeah. If even if if you breastfeed for a year, I mean that's a long time to hold off on something that probably that should be done earlier. Um, oh, yeah, so something absolutely. To keep in mind. So you um you talk a little bit on your Instagram about going through IVF and um having a baby and and going through all of that. So how can you tell us a little bit about what that was like for you and as a physician on the other side? And I can't imagine trying to go number one, just go through that period, but then trying to, gosh, work and do all of those appointments and hormones and all that. And what was that like for you? Um, I think it was definitely like a challenging time. Um, I think that, you know, I didn't, I, I, I had a lot of stress about it, like, because I was always someone who valued my career and I always, you know, I felt really grateful to be in the field I was in. And it was hard for me to kind of figure out a way to do it all. Right. Um, and I wasn't sure whether, you know, I think there's a lot of people who feel guilt about that. Like, you know, oh, like, I want to have a kid, but I am taking call. And how is how am I how am I going to do this when my cot when I my I'm short staffed in my group? Like, how is this going to affect my colleagues and things like that? Um, but I realized that like, this was something that I really wanted to do. I really did want to have a family and um, I wouldn't feel fulfilled if I didn't at least give this my, give it my best. Um, So it was definitely a really challenging time, um, you know, trying to get through, get to appointments and, you know, while working full time, um, trying to get procedures done and then 
even the the emotional challenges like the it's an obvious the hormones just oh my god it's like an emotional yeah. roller coaster it's like crazy and then just physically dealing with the physical side effects of everything was definitely challenging um but when i was going through it i realized i also realized that there were a lot of people that went through it just but didn't really Don't talk, talk about, about it, it. right um, did you talk to your colleagues yeah. after residency or was, so were you an attending or was this during, when was this, in, at what point in your career? Um, so this was when I was an attending. I had gotten married when I was like a new attending. I got married when I was 32, 33, um, you know, so I was a little older and I really wanted to start a family and mm -hmm. we had tried for a few, few, few years. And then, um, you know, I didn't really think that much about IVF earlier or egg freezing. I just thought that I would get pregnant right away and it wasn't a big deal. And then I started realizing that I started getting concerned. And I think it was probably through social media that I started reading more about, you know, egg freezing and fertility and things like that. And then that's kind of when I decided to see at the age of like 35, I decided to see a fertility specialist. And, um, you know, that was when I was in attending and I started a new job and, yeah. um, you know, it was a tough time to kind of navigate that. But I realized that for me, um, I think transparency was important and I think it's tough to do in like a very male dominated field yeah. and especially in healthcare. Um, but you know, I also didn't, I realized that I needed the transparency in order for me to make my appointments and really have the support I need at work. Yeah. So I was very open about it. And that's when I kind of started posting about it, um, talking a little bit more about it. And also I told my, my, you know, my, my colleagues are, you know, the partners in the group, like, Hey guys, like I'm going through this. I, I'm going, going to go through this and I'm going to go through IVF. And, you know, I, I really appreciate your support and I hope you understand, um, you know, I may need to, may need to get, you know, get coverage certain days, but you know, we'll figure it out. And once I told him that they were incredibly supportive, I was very surprised actually, because, you know, I didn't think I would get the support that I, that I expected, you know, I just thought, okay, they would, they would know I'm going through it. And as long as I got to my appointments, it'd be okay. But, it was actually incredible to see how much support I received. That's interesting. Um, yeah. So would you encourage people to be more open about it? I mean, that people are so, it's still, it's so interesting to me that even with as much as there is, I feel like on social media, you know, and in, in different women's groups and support groups and moms and people like you that are telling their stories, but I still feel like in within like people that we know, you know, like you're, real life friends and people, it, it always comes out as like, I had no idea that you had been struggling with this for X amount of time. And, and, and I, there's just still, like, I, don't, I don't know if even if, if it's a stigma or like a shame or guilt, I, I don't know what it is, but it's still just not as openly talked about as I feel like it should be. Yeah. I mean, it obviously depends on the person um, yeah. and their you know, their personality and some people like to be more private, but honestly, I don't know how, I mean, in, uh, I, I guess it depends on what field you're in. 
but for me and and many of the uh, people in medicine like they really need to let their colleagues know i mean i mean i think it would add a level of additional stress to the person if they didn't have some transparency or they confided in some people that they worked with yeah. and um you know i think that there's like a fear of like i do know of a lot of people and a lot of doctors that have gone through it. And I do know of quite a few doctors that didn't tell their colleagues anything. And I was like, how did you do that? Because, you know, you need, you need, sometimes you need coverage or, you know, you need, you need to run out to go get your labs drawn. You need to run out to get an ultrasound. And um, I felt for me, like transparency was the best way. And, you know, I, for example, used to work closely with the surgeon. I did, I did most of his cases exclusively. And, um, you know, I told them, I was like, listen, I'm gonna have to step out in between cases, like to get labs drawn. And he's like, okay, just do what you got to do. And, you know, I think that I think that it kind of adds a level of like, support also, I mean, there's so many reasons for me, I just feel like the transparency just really helps. I mean, it, it gives you a level of under of under your colleagues understand what you're going through. They're not wondering where you are and they're not thinking like oh this person's being a flake i think it adds a level of like they have a set of i get they have a feeling of understanding and then they're also able to support you in return yeah and um you know i had colleagues that came up to me male colleagues that were like oh you know they're like amita i'm so sorry you're going through this you know me and my wife we went through multiple iuis we were about to go through ivf like mm -hmm. i don't know how you're doing this um and, you know, these were people I just like never thought I would hear that from, you know, yeah. that wished me well. So, you know, I think, I think it's something that's, that we should discuss more in medicine, in healthcare overall. Were there any resources that you felt like were helpful for you while you were going through that? Like um, women's group or support groups or, I mean, I always turn people to my friend started a company called Natalis that's just kind of changing the conversation around that. Um, and it's really creating new products that are feel less sterile and cold and um, sciencey. So I love their mm -hmm. company, but, um, but I haven't, I, I didn't go through that. So I feel like I don't know as, as well, like where to t tell people to turn. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a ton of uh, resources. I, had, I followed a lot of the fertility doctors on uh -huh. social media. It, they, I mean, they have a lot of great resources that they, and a lot of information that they put out there, like, you know, um, Dr. Anu Katharisen or Natalie Crawford or, yeah. and um, Ruhi Jelani, like, you know, all so many incredible resources on social media. They, I think Natalie Crawford has a podcast. I used to listen to that and I thought that was really helpful for me to understand the process. Um, and then, you know, finding your own support system. I think I was really lucky and I ended up finding friends that were going through IVF at the same time as me. And they really became like my family. And, you know, it was nice to have people that understood what, what I was going through and going, were going through it with me at the same time. Yeah. Um, but there's so many Facebook groups. There's just so many people out there that, you know, where you can find a support system because it's so important that, you know, women don't feel like they're going through this alone. 
Yeah. Um, and it can be tough because, you know, sometimes it feels really isolating. Like, you know, when everyone around you is having kids or has families and, you know, you're, you're trying to get pregnant and you're, you know, going through this by yourself. But in reality, there's so many people that can, so that can people. relate to what you're going through. Yeah. Yeah. It really is more people than, I, than anyone realizes, I think, uh, more women. And um, it's, yeah, it's an interesting thing. Um, well, thank you so much for chatting. That was really, that was awesome. I hope this will help some alleviate some fears and help some women feel better about anesthesia. Women, people, dudes, there's a few dudes that listen to my podcast, like my husband and old boss and three of my friends. So maybe they will feel better <laughs> about anesthesia. Yay. I loved our conversation. Um, and I thank you for talking about your experience with IVF. I think that's always really helpful for people to hear. Anytime, my friend. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, have a great night. Um, and thanks for coming on late. We both have kids, so we had to do some juggling today <laughs> and, um, and reschedule, but it's, that's what we do. And I appreciate you being here and taking the time. As always, y'all, if you like the podcast, please share it with your friends, um, rate, subscribe, send it to people. That's how people find us and find the podcast and how we get good guests. And I'll see you guys next week.